If you've ever felt isolated, confused, or overwhelmed by midlife changes, you're not alone. Welcome to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. I'm so happy you're here. I'm the author of Me, Myself, and I, a midlife coach and public speaker. My mission is to create deeper conversations with dynamic people from all walks of life about how midlife's completely shifted who they thought they were and ultimately how they've come to see themselves again. When it comes to navigating the funky junk of midlife identity loss and the unnamed grief that goes along with it, it's time for straight talk. Get ready for real stories, real connection, and real hope accompanied by a little bit of humor and a whole lot of love. You're now part of Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. So here we are at last, Jennifer Batten. I have seen you play several times and we've drank tequila together. We've had some conversations and you always inspire and uh, amaze me. Well, thank you. So, yeah, my guest with me on Identity Talk is Jennifer Batten. She's a world-renowned guitarist who's played uh, with Michael Jackson. We're going to talk about that. She toured with him for 10 years. Jeff Beck uh, toured with him for a couple of years and uh, has done all sorts of things. She's a true artist. Whenever I think of Jennifer Batten, I always think she's a true artist. And so thank you for being here with me. We're going to have so much to talk about. Yeah. In this, this crazy world, we get a whole new perspective on what it means to be a human being. That's for sure. That's for sure. What, what makes you say that? When you, when you say that, what do you think? What comes to your mind? You know, all of a sudden, instead of being in the rat race, we're taking a step back and looking at survival you know it's going down to the basics where so many people have lost their businesses and their way to make a living and pay bills it just makes you start uh, creatively thinking how can you get out of this how can you survive and then there's the batshit crazy people that think it's all a hoax and they're they're gonna infect even more of us so it's like sometimes I go, I, I would I wish to join a new species. Can I sign up for a new species? <laughs> I'm not real happy with this one. But it seems that from what I've seen, just at a distance from who you are, that you are good at throwing yourself into it, whatever it is. Like I feel that you're one of those people that knows how to be in life for life, if you know what I mean. Interesting. Yeah, I've, I have gone headfirst into a whole lot of different things. And a lot of times it's been by necessity. Uh, like what I, I do a solo film show. And after I played with Michael Jackson and Jeff Beck, I, I, I remember sitting on the couch. I remember the day that it happened and I was going, okay, I guess it's time to do my own music. And just the thought of putting a band together just made me break out in hives. <laughs> you know, it's like I've had past experiences where you always get the whiners. There's there's going to be, well, what if people don't show up at a venue Then I'm stuck paying everybody and just on and on and on layers of responsibility I really don't want. So I started thinking, what what can I do with just me? You know, there's plenty of acoustic players that go around the world um, or singer songwriters that can do it on their own. And since I don't 
really play acoustic much and I don't sing, um, I came up with the idea of playing in sync with films. So, you know, that started as a seed out of panic. Like, what is next? I was with Michael Jackson and Jeff Beck, and I'm not dead yet. So what do I do with my life? So I went in that direction and really glad I did. It's, it saved my ass many times. The reason why I wanted you on Identity Talk is because you have lived such an amazing life. The fact that you have played a Super Bowl with Michael Jackson with 1.8 billion, that's with a B, billion viewers, most viewed Super Bowl of all time, and you have been on that stage and you have toured and you've done these things that people can only dream of. Like, I want to talk about that as your relationship to Jennifer when you see yourself. Is that a dream and what's that like? So let's just start at the beginning, though, with the guitar playing. I read that you got a guitar as a gift when you were eight years old. Uh, yeah, it was a gift after begging. <laughs> so, yeah, my sister had a guitar and I didn't and I was super jealous and there were a couple people in my little town in upstate New York that played guitar and it was just the coolest thing ever. Plus the whole Beatles mania, a Beatlemania thing had happened and I was, I was in. So, you know, I, I finally got a, a guitar for Christmas and back then, uh, early sixties, it was really unusual to give a kid um, an electric guitar for their first guitar. Most you know, most everybody gives acoustic because you get electric, then you need an amplifier and on and on. Plus it's noisy. Um, but my dad had an amplifier and he had a, actually that, that guitar that's behind me there, the, the Gibson L4. And I, you know, I couldn't play it, but I strapped it on and posed around the neighborhood like I could. So there was always that little fantasy of being on stage ever since I was eight, I think. I started taking lessons right away from the local music store. Family moved several times and I ended up with different teachers every time and went from you know, learning the basics in the, the Alfred music books, the first three frets, to a guy that taught me finger picking. The next guy was into the blues. The next guy was into rock. So I, I got a, a pretty good mix of genres uh, before I ended up going to music school. Because when you talk about your influences, and I hear it in your musical style, you have such a range of of uh, influence. You can hear it coming through. Yeah, well, that's a little bit of schizophrenia, I think. <laughs> and, you know, there's such a rich world of music out there to draw from. Then to, to stick with just one genre for any length of time is like, it's like only eating pizza. There's so much more out there to experiment with. And for instance, I got really interested in world beat music, I think, from watching Tarzan on Sunday afternoons. You know, you hear those African drums and it was so intriguing and it would just bring your whole being into the jungle. So I, I did a lot of exploring. It was going to sound like a cliche, but was it in your blood? Like, was it something you just knew and felt and understood without any words? Yeah, I think it helped to be immersed in uh, in the social circle. Plus my dad was, well, my mother played piano also, uh, but my dad was a huge jazz fan. So anytime he was not working, that music was on until he went to bed at night. So that's, that's a backdrop. And 
you know, I wasn't sitting, sitting down going, Oh, what are those changes, man? Who's that Charlie Mingus? <laughs> you know, it was just, it was just there. And uh, the frequencies got into my gray matter somehow. And, and my, at the same time, my sisters were into um, soul music, Motown. And uh, I remember one time they had an intervention because they didn't think I was listening to music that was hip enough. <laughs> <laughs> and at, Actually, that time they bought me a, a Crosby, Stills and Nash record for Christmas, which, which is you know far cry from Motown. Yeah, but yeah. at the same, t- you know, but at the same time, like that was the music of what was was happening yeah. then. Um, I miss that music. I I listen to that music all the time. Still, uh, it's very much ingrained in my DNA mm-hmm. of who I am. But I can imagine being a kid at like thirteen, fourteen, and being around other people and always having a guitar, it would feel like that you would always have a companion, uh, that you would always have somebody or something to count on. Like that would be a conduit of strength and and continuity and certainty maybe. Yeah. um, Well, the continuity was always taking music lessons for many, many, many years. Um, And unfortunately I was mostly a closet player, uh, you know, I, I said we moved a, a bit, and I, I only remember there was there was one other girl when I was uh, a teenager, maybe 14 years old, that had borrowed her boyfriend's black Les Paul, and it was super exotic and expensive. And so we we played together for a little bit, um, working on uh, Robin Trower songs at that time. But um, other than that, it was pretty much me in the closet working on the lessons I was given. <laughs> How often did you practice? Every day. Yeah, not long. Yeah. Maybe a half hour or an hour every day, I suppose. Whatever it took to get down the lesson I was supposed to get together. But um, as time went on, I, I ended up uh, taking a test to get into Musicians Institute, which at that time was just the Guitar Institute, because uh, well, I was just getting off the ground, and it was the third class they ever had. And I flunked the test, because um, although I had learned a bunch of songs and a bunch of techniques, I did not know diatonic scales I didn't know chord scales I just was not taught the tools of music I was just taught songs so I, I went back to San Diego from LA where, where the institute is and studied with a really great jazz guitar player named Peter Sprague for six months really intensely and that I was probably practicing four or five hours a day to catch up at that point and was able to get into the school six months later but I was, I was at the so bottom great. wrong. I mean, I was, I think the only kid in class that had never played a gig live because my mother didn't want me to go out and play with strangers. So, <laughs> so I, I had some catching up to do, but I worked hard. Um, and, and I got some awards at the end of the year for, for pushing myself, really. How many women were in your class? I was it. That was it. Yeah. And we'll talk about that because I'm very interested in that. So that's, that was my guess. And I was curious about that. So didn't the audition come from, for Michael Jackson, didn't the audition come from somebody at that school who had recommended you for the audition? Yeah. Yeah. They had a referral service that had been up for several years uh, when the audition came up in 1987. And I was lucky enough to get the call to even know about it. Because most most big tours like that, it's people that know people or friends of people, and both of us guitar players. The other the other one was John Clark, 
normally had David Williams. He's the guy that, you know, his, uh, his grooves from Billie Jean and even back as far as the Jackson five, he was out with Madonna. So he couldn't do the Jackson tour. And, um, and Paul Jackson was, was, uh, he would have John Clark sub for him. So that was word of mouth, how John got in, but they were just doing open auditions for, for other players. Were they looking for, was, was Michael Jackson looking for a female player? Cause like, why did you get the call to audition as opposed to maybe any, any of the other students from the school? You know, I'm not, I'm not positive about that. I never got feedback about that. And there, there were guys that auditioned. Uh, Greg okay. Wright was one of the guys that auditioned and he had played on the victory tour. So I, I don't know. I didn't ask questions. I just said, I'll yeah. be there. <laughs> so you got the call. I did watch your video, your audition video that you had submitted oh, yeah. that Michael Jackson had asked for videos first, he, that he wasn't in the room and that you just played some riffs. And I, and I saw that you look, I would never have imagined, you know, the girl with the wild blonde hair right. on the stage of the Super Bowl is that girl that auditioned. Because you kind of look like the girl next door. You look a little nerdy, I guess. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I hate, I hate to say it, but then you started playing and you were like on fucking fire. <laughs> like it was amazing. That was so cool to see. Well, you know, it was a real blessing that Michael had a vision of what look he could turn me into. Because at <laughs> that time, I remember there was a, there was a music magazine monthly in the LA area that that's where you would go to look for bands that were looking for people. And all of the ads would say, must have hair. It was all about the hair in the eighties and must have a look. I didn't have a clue, but Michael did because he had been in show business since he was five and he saw what transformations could happen with people. So you did, you did the video, you did the audition and I can post the link on my uh, podcast page because I think it's so fascinating. And then you got the call that you got the gig. Well, you had to audition one more time with the band. When I got the call that Michael was interested, they said, just come down and play with the band and just see how it goes. And they never told me I had the gig. It's just, they weren't sending me home. It was, it was just kind of weird. So I just kept subbing out my work. Like I didn't really know. One month went by. We, we, probably went five, six days a week, many hours a day. And then the second month we joined Michael and the singers and the dancers in a huge sound stage. So we could do special effects and pyro and lasers. How was that first time for you to think of all the lessons you had taken, all the going back and trying to get into the school and everything. And then all of a sudden you're on, you're on stage and here comes Michael Jackson, Michael fucking yeah, right. Jackson. <laughs> You know, I I was a big fan of his for starters, so it was a, a bit intimidating because he was the biggest star in the planet. There was part part of me was thinking, well, I can do this. You know, I've played music that's much harder than this. This is pop music. It's essentially it's like a cover band, except all the covers are by the same guy. You know, so there right. there is that. Well, the music then didn't intimidate you in terms of the skill or the requirement, but what about your Jennifer from New York who had these experiences of being a, a child and taking music lessons? And I don't know, it just seems like, did you feel in your heart that 
you belonged? I did. Yeah. Yeah. I felt cool. like I was ready for it. That's not to say it wasn't intimidating because that's cool. All though. of the, except for John Clark, all of the other players had done big gigs like that before. Ricky Lawson was like one of the number one calls. He played with Whitney Houston and Ryan, Lionel Richie and Don Boyette had played with Lionel. Greg Fellingane's the musical director was playing with Stevie Wonder when he was like 17 years old. He's like a musical genius. So their level of musicianship was was higher than mine for sure. But, and I was really lucky in that a lot of situations like that, the elders are kind of dicks to the new people coming in. Right. You know, I've seen that and heard many stories and it wasn't like that with Michael. Everybody was very respectful and helpful and it was great. And we, the people that are alive, we still stay in touch. So then how did the look come into it? Because from your audition yeah. <laughs> tape, nerdy, nerdy Jennifer to uh, hair and wild and leather and just fucking badass <laughs> on stage, flailing wild hair. Yeah. Uh, well, Michael hired an artist to draw up a look for every performer on stage. And they came up with uh, three different costumes, three different drawings and paintings. And then they would get the wardrobe people to take measurements and find the material and make those things happen. And then the, the makeup and hair people went to town and you know they, they had the, the pictures or the drawings on the mirror and kept referring to them to transform the look. How did that feel when you saw yourself for the first time with everything on, like, where were you? What show was it? Was it right before the tour? Or tell yeah. me about that. Uh, oh, there was, there was one day and I think maybe it was in band, I don't know, band rehearsals or, or the full on rehearsals that they took me out and dyed my hair platinum blonde. You know, I, I was totally into it. I, I had no problem at all with that. I will say that once I saw the look for the initial leg of the tour when we started off in Japan I thought it was a little harsh because it, it, it was like a mohawk like like that straight across my head but it wasn't shaved on the sides it could have been way more harsh so it, it was a little tamer than that but after a few months I, I asked if they could tame it out a little more and so it, it became something I could certainly live with but not do myself <laughs> did you did you feel like yourself when you saw yourself in the mirror? Yeah. Yeah. There was no disconnect there. I'll tell you when the disconnect happened. This is really interesting because I, I, you know, moments in your life are just burned in your memory. We had jumped on a plane and landed in Tokyo and everything was new and different and Japanese kanji on the, on the traffic signs. And we got to the hotel and everybody went to their rooms. And I remember sitting on the bed, just, uh, a little disappointed because I'd always dreamed of this level of being in a big band, playing for thousands and thousands of people, but I still felt like me. 
and I thought I would feel like somebody else. That's interesting. Did you feel that way when you went out on stage for the first time with Michael? No, not at all. I left that all in the hotel. (laughs) You know, what was that like to just go out on stage, the lights come up and everybody's like screaming my heart. Like I even talking about it, I get those butterflies that high that I'm sweating. I feel, you know, all the adrenaline and like, fuck yeah, I'm here in Tokyo with Michael fucking Jackson. Lots of adrenaline. Um, it was, it was just exciting. Uh, we had rehearsed so much and were so well prepared. There was no nervousness about, oh God, I hope I remember the chords or what the next song is. That, that was so second nature. And man, just looking out was incredible. What was the song? Huh? What was the first, what was the opening song? Want to be starting something. They would start with drums and I can hear that in my head. Just bah, 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 da, 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 da. And we played everything so fast. It's not uncommon for acts to to bump up the BPM live to make things a little more exciting, but some of those songs were just off on the racetrack compared to the the recorded version. It was just crazy. Uh, but Michael had the energy to dance for two hours straight at those tempos. It was wow. But yeah, um, well, I, I would say we started in Japan, and I had never played for an audience like that. There's probably forty, fifty thousand people. And between songs, you know, they would clap and then it was silent and then we'd start the next song. And the guys that had done those kind of shows before were going, oh, come on, you know, they're so lame. They're so quiet. Well, the next stop was Australia. And then I got it because they never shut up. They just started screaming note one and didn't finish for two and a half hours, you know. (laughs) So Japanese culture is just completely different. And at the end of the shows, it's the only place in the world I've experienced this. Um, even in a stadium, they would release people by rows. So it would be just wow. a total clusterfuck of people trying to elbow their way out into the parking <laughs> lot and the trains. Uh, yeah, very orderly and smart. I mean, it's kind of like you get to move. Well, you had the advantage of being able to move in the world, living a rock star life without necessarily being recognized as a rock star because if your hair's not done in the mohawk and you don't have all the makeup or whatever and you're just trekking around Tokyo people may it wouldn't be like Michael Jackson wherever he goes there's a mob scene and oh, yeah, know, yeah, things yeah. have to shut down yeah nothing like that did you think to yourself I'm living a dream were you able to be present with it or did it always feel like a dream I yeah I was present with it um I, I really appreciated it. I remember I read uh, the Moonwalker book had just come out and I read that when I was in Australia. And uh, I remember one really fun time was when we were in Japan in the midst of all those shows, they had released a, a promo video of Michael and the Jackson five and that kind of stuff on national TV. And we all gathered in one room to watch that. And it was just so exciting to have the band and performers around me and, knowing that I'm in it. I'm watching something on TV that I'm actually involved in. But I will say, really, looking out at the audience felt surreal. It, it never felt real. It, just, it was just this whole other level of crazy. Were you able to be a fan oh. at the same time? I mean, because you had been a fan? Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. My, my favorite part of the night was when we did Billie Jean and at the end it was just drums and dancing. So I didn't have to play and I had the best seat in the house every night watching the grace of his body move. 
and improvise those moves to the drums was, was just wonderful. And Human Nature is another one that's burned into my DNA because it's, it's such a gorgeous song. And the grace of his body and the beauty of his voice. And then you combine the lighting design around him. Like he was in this laser bubble. That would just take you to another universe. I mean, it just sounds so ethereal yes. and... Uh... It, it sounds it sounds like out, outworldly. It's hard to even describe, but I can see it when you talk about it. Yeah. There's it's hard to put into words that feeling of experience. Yeah, I mean, seeing you him. know, he had the power to to uh, allow people to transcend their their lives for a few hours at a time. You know, it's not like you're looking at your watch, like oh, how many songs are we in? It's just like, you are in this other world. We're taking you on the ride. And at the end, sorry, but you have to go back to your normal life. <laughs> at the right. end of the tour, that's what I felt like. It's like, ah, oh, shit. Nobody's going to come <laughs> knocking on my door to make my bed in the morning. Nobody's gonna <laughs> no candies, service. no chocolate at night on your right, pillow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, we're just, yeah. A hundred percent spoiled, which, you know, he he had the budget to do that. A, a lot of a lot of rich rock stars have the budget to do that and don't. You know, they make the the band sleep on the bus or whatever. But um, we were treated very well. No restrictions on luggage. It was just crazy fun, spoiled time. So then let's get to the Super Bowl because that is the the jewel I think when I think of like what an ultimate rock star moment yeah. would be um and I did watch that uh YouTube video a couple days ago because I wanted to see it and I had taken notes that the moment before you were going on stage you were sitting there and you were watching him I could see you that you were watching him. Like I could see the admiration when he was just on stage by himself. Yeah. And when black or white came on, it was only you and him on the stage yeah. for a while. You were standing there together. And that was just so amazing because at that time before he did the production of the show was so simple. It was just him and you and the stage. And I thought how awesome that is that you had that moment without anything else, without any of the production bells and whistles or things that Super Bowl shows do. It was just the two of you. Uh, there, were, there were moments that we were together, but there, you know, th there were things that I didn't know were going to happen. Like when the show opened, there was an impersonator that popped out of the scoreboard in a puff of smoke, you know, with this mu big music behind it. I didn't know that was going to happen. And you see, I'm staring at that. And then it happened on the other scoreboard on the other side. So I, I had no clue about that. And I had no clue actually during uh, Heal the World that all these kids had papers or letters that spelled something that they, they broke out in different colors above their heads. I had no clue. I'm just like, I was in the audience at that moment going, wow, didn't get the memo. 
So were you thinking more of being on the stage or being with him or being in front of the Super Bowl crowd? I don't know how many, it was the Cowboys and the Bills. I did see that, but I don't know. Um, or were you thinking of, I mean, did you know how many people were watching? Did you get the magnitude of how big this was? Or were you just doing it like another show? Did it feel different? Oh, it, it felt very different. It was a one-off thing, one of a kind. It was medleys of songs that we didn't do in the normal show. Plus, you have the pressure of the time of a couple latest potato chip commercials to get the stage out <laughs> into the middle of the field, get it connected, get the band on there. So honestly, that's the only time I ever really felt that Michael was nervous because it's such big pressure. It's live. There's no rewind. There's no editing. It's just going to be out there forever. I didn't realize how many people were watching it on TV at the time. I know it was aired, you know, around the world, but it, I wasn't even thinking of those numbers. But I, I will say, you know, all the gigs that we did around the world, the stadiums were full of Michael Jackson fans. These weren't necessarily Michael fans. These were football fans. Right. So, you know, when he popped out of the stage with what they call the toaster, it would spring him out from underneath the stage onto the stage. He stood there for as long as he normally would with a stadium full of his own fans and it was too long because it was a different audience you know you're just going oh sorry. i did i did see that yeah, yeah i did notice it's that like that part you go michael let's get going <laughs> yeah well maybe that's for him yeah oh sure he was probably trying to get his head together yeah yeah when you're nervous there's a time warp and you don't even realize how much time is going by sometimes it feels like you know a 10 minute went by in three minutes and sometimes if it's not going well it seems like 15 minutes so how did your time with michael end? and then we'll get on to jeff beck but how did how did that time end and where did that leave you with yourself and how you felt and what was going on well there were three tours over a period of 10 years and between tours i didn't have any idea that i'd be going out with him again so i just went about my way and went back to teaching and playing and writing and trying to get my own career off the ground. Uh, I had finished three demos for my first CD before I went off on tour with him and then came back and did that record, which took forever. And that record was released right when they announced the Dangerous Tour. So it was really cool because I was able to use all the travel that was paid for in these different countries to um, hire a, an agent to get me press everywhere. So that worked out really well. At the end of the 10 years, at the end of the history tour, it was a real letdown because there was a the thing that happened that, uh, actually, I, I can't remember if I released it yet or if it's the next storytelling series that I'm doing on my YouTube channel, that we were supposed to go to Turkey, and we did. And at the time, we Americans, I, I never looked into the details of anything, but we accidentally sunk one of the Turkish ships and there were sailors in the hospital in Izmir. And next thing I know, the show is quote unquote postponed. And then Michael is flown to London. And the story we get is that he's having some throat problems and, you know, we'd make up the show in a couple of days. Well, it never happened. Yeah. Uh, we were supposed to go to Greece and I had a bunch of press for my record set up there and it just got canceled. It's just the first flights that we found. We went home. There was no end of tour party. It was just the end of it all. So 
That's so anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah. To do something so big and then just to feel nothing. Yeah, yeah. It was it was super depressing. And then you know, after every tour, you're just on this high for so long. Then you go, okay, now what do I do? So <laughs> I I don't remember what I did, but. Does the now what I do feel like a, an opportunity or more of a depressing realization? Well, I, I was always wanting to get my own career and my own music off the ground. So every time I got back, um, I start working on my own music. And honestly, it wasn't that long. I think within six months of that tour ending, I, I ended up getting a call from Jeff Beck. So how did that happen? Because I know I read, I, and I could be wrong, you never, it's, if it's in print, right. doesn't mean it's true. But I think I read that you were a Jeff Beck fan growing up and listening to his music. So uh, that obviously must have been a big fucking deal to get that call. I would give anything to, you know, dig into the FBI records and hear that phone call. <laughs> <laughs> See if I can get Snowden to track that thing down. Yeah, it was very complimentary. And I, I had uh, wanted to to track him down. And uh, there was a guy on the bad tour that said he knew him and he'd hook us up and it didn't happen. So when the dangerous tour happened, I knew we were going to England. That I made it my number one mission of the whole tour to meet him. And I finally did and gave him a copy of my first CD and a video of Flight at the Bumblebee because... I had just done a thing in the MTV studios in London and they gave me copies of, of that. So I gave that to him, got my autograph, went about my way. And I thought I'd never hear from him again or ever see him again. Were you totally fangirling in that moment though? I was an idiot. I, I wasn't even fangirling. <laughs> the thing is I had this man, well, his music in my consciousness for so long and I had learned all the solos on two of his records and knew him so well, but I didn't know him as a person. And before the internet, it was really kind of hard to get any personal information on any act. And I would scour through British guitar magazines, which were really exotic at that time. You had to go to specialty shops. So honestly, right. when I met him, I was really thankful I had two friends with me. Uh, I mean, on the phone, it was it was okay. I mean, I was super hyper and joyous and it was not that long of a phone call but when I finally met him face to face I had two friends with me that helped keep the conversation going because I didn't know what to say to him but he's he's a super friendly guy very relaxed and when we finally did play um, it was very intimidating you know you hold this guy on a pedestal for so many years and I still do to think that I could be in his band wasn't even in any of my dreams. So it was anxiety provoking, shall we say. But due to his personality, yeah. once once I was in there, it was much more comfortable. Did you have the imposter syndrome in that time? Yeah. In that that was that more of like, oh my God, I'm here, but I'm not here. I shouldn't be here. Can't believe I'm here. Like, did you go through the whole gamut of oh, yeah. what the hell am I doing oh, yeah. here? And I'll never forget one time we played the amphitheater in LA, which is like 6,000 guitar players. <laughs> you know, it's like, everybody's a musician. That's funny. And it was super high pressure. And I remember in one real quiet moment, somebody from the audience yelled out something like, the God of tone. <laughs> and I knew he wasn't talking about me, you know, and I'm just going, <laughs> I am nothing. But you know, 
is what it is. You, I, I think, I think all creative people fight with themselves their whole lives, and the best you can hope for is moments of being comfortable with yourself, and just saying, "I am what I am. I have something to offer. I like what I'm doing. If you don't like it, piss off." Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, all, all artists, writers, musicians, sure. painters, whatever it is. And even when you're in those moments when you're around other artists who have inspired you, if you get so lucky to have a moment like that, uh, I imagine you would still feel like, hey, take a minute, enjoy this. Don't, you know, you would tell yourself, you'd fight with yourself in your head, get the fuck out of me trying to shit on this. I call them parade shitters and just be in the moment. Enjoy this. Look at where you are. Like you have to talk yourself yeah. into it. Well, you know what? The best I could do with that kind of energy was to funnel it into work. And I worked my ass off that whole time. I was doing nothing but working for him, writing songs, uh, working on sounds. It, it was just endless and exhausting. At the end of three years, I, I was ready for a rest. Yeah. Um, how was it to be, we talked about this earlier, we were alluding on it, but here's the moment, to be one of the few women, very male-centric, dominated business where all aspects of it were led by men, dictated by men, perceived by men, discussed by men, and here you are in the room and everybody maybe, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe talks around you or how was that to be a woman in a man's world? You know, a, a lot of the, the negative energy of, around that is so subtle. You can't put your finger on it unless somebody, you know, the typical, Hey, you play pretty good for a girl. Or I remember one guy came up to us after a cover band show I did and said, wow, you play just like a dude. You know, what the hell does that mean? You know, but I mean, I, I took the energy of it as he meant it as a compliment. So I took it as that. It's just kind of drag. You know, the, the whole the whole thing with any competition at all is a drag. You know, if in any genre, if people were just there, could soak up the inspiration from other people and share instead of feel like there's so much lack, uh, I'm not gonna show you my licks or uh, putting other people down to give yourself the illusion of building yourself up. It's, it's, it's a super drag. And I, I remember when I got the Jackson gig, I, I heard about some people talking smack about me behind my back and it's jealousy. It was jealousy and I, I knew what it was. It, the same thing happened to the dancers as well. Um, but what are you going to do about it? Did you ever see the Linda Ronstadt documentary that came out about a year ago or whatever? I suggest you watch it because she really shows how she was a woman in a man's world coming up in the business. And she was very clear and adamant about lifting up other women ah. and the women who were around her. And she made it a point to uh, just lift them up like sisters arm in arm and there wasn't jealousy and she was she was so good about that and I always see how much of yourself you have to put out and into it when you're trying to get there and it's not like there's not enough room she made it seem like let's be together and be inspired by each other there's more than enough room and that to me was something that I feel 
I don't know how enough women, how they made it during those days without being objectified sexually or criticized professionally. It's one or the other. Yeah, you know, because the creative arts, you're, you're fighting with your, your own being, never mind the outside forces that don't want you to succeed. So it, it's kind of a double whammy. And, uh, you know, none of the creative arts are easy. It, it's, it's always, you have to believe in yourself enough or at least have enough um, uh, pull to do what you want to do, that there are no other options. You must do your craft. You can't afford to focus on the negative because that'll bring you down in a hurry. Whatever art you've been engaged in, whether it's been creating your own music or I, I've seen your steampunk art that you've created. Um, you did stained glass too for a while, I think. I remember you telling yeah, me about that. Yeah, I was a, a super obsessed with glass for three solid years. Yeah, um, but wherever you've put your heart or expression, it's you coming to the art form and the art form is then informing you. I kind of have seen how it's been symbiotic and the way you're describing it, whether you're playing for Michael Jackson or Jeff Beck or doing your own thing, it's uh, a matter of making sure it's a symbiotic relationship. You are bringing yourself to your art and you're allowing the art to inform you. That's what it seems like to me as an outsider from the work I've seen from what you've done. Well spoken. <laughs> A lot of times I can't put that sort of thing into words, but that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and not everybody can do that because their identity for a lot of people, what they do is what only only thing that they bring to it, right? That's who informs that's what informs who they are. Or they are so bent on making sure that they are part of something and that, you know, their ego is involved. They don't let the process inform them. They don't they miss the whole part of it. They miss the whole give and take of whatever that expression can bring back. Because if you're truly in it, you don't know what it's going to become. You can't decide. Very true. Yeah. And I, I can look back at the pieces of art that I've done and tell which ones were way too left brain, you know, where I was trying to force something to happen and uh, didn't, didn't give enough space to the creative force to just make it what it should have been. Do you go back and try to, or do you just go on? No, move on to something new. What are you, what are you working on now? Like what do you, what forms of artistry are you engaged in? Uh, during the pandemic, I'm, uh, I've, I, I had a YouTube channel, but I never put things up regularly. Now I'm putting up a, a riff. I have a, a, a playlist called the riff kitchen. So I'm, I'm, putting up guitar riffs almost every day and then breaking them down, playing them fast, playing them slow. And it's a 10 minute educational piece. And I also have another one for people that are not guitar players. That is a storytelling thing that I, I got the, the title of it from my years in LA. It's called Ke So This One Time. Okay. <laughs> so I've got, I put out five in the series so far and those, those are about 10 minutes because people's attention span will not go longer than that for the most part. Um, plus it takes a lot of work. I mean, spewing out all these stories and doing the editing and adding in some photos and stuff is, is very time consuming. So that between that and trying to learn about streaming software and how people are making a living online, you know, we're, we're not going to be able to play for 
probably a minimum of a year. And that's a whole lot of mortgage payments that I can't make. Right. So, you know, I, every, I know everybody's scrambling right now to try to figure it out. You know, doing part, part of the Rift series is coming up with content for lessons. Uh, I do work for a, a company called truefire.com. I've got three courses out with them. And they started a thing last year that's just kind of a sidecar where you get your own channel within the muscle of their site to do four tiers of subscription memberships. I'm on the first rung of the ladder of trying to come up with content to put in there. Advertising. And most musicians didn't grow up with that skill. We didn't go to marketing school. You know, it's like I'm putting out my Facebook post and now everybody says that's passe. Now you got to go to get Instagram. And I just discovered TikTok like a week ago. So it's it's overwhelming. It's really overwhelming because I'll do these videos for for YouTube. And then you have to do a different format for everything else. And it's literally a full time job. Just just keeping up with with uploads for all these different places uh where do you find inspiration these days like how do you get inspired boy this is a rough spell right uh yeah i mean it's my brain goes between apocalypse and sabbatical right so i guess the inspiration is uh whenever i learn something and whenever i have a win then that there's some energy there to motivate me to get to the next level and i got a couple friends helping me out with um you know, at first I was putting licks up that were two to three minutes and they go, because of the analytics of YouTube, you got to have a little over 10 minutes to, to get the most bang for the buck. And I still don't even understand why that is, but I'm going, okay, that's what I'm going to do. This is a new career and I'm learning a new skill. And uh, th- that there's part of it that's exciting, honestly, because I was getting super burnt on travel. I've done it for 30 years, um, you know, getting beat up with jet lag and airlines losing or breaking my guitars and things going wrong and people not paying. It's like, at this point, I I started a cover band last year because I wanted to work at home more. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. I am at home for the foreseeable future. Yeah. I mean, I think for a lot of people, it was determining whether this was uh, the apocalypse or the rebirth. I mean, I think a lot of people yeah. are feeling the juxtaposition of nothing will be the same and nothing will be the same. You know, I mean, they both they both have a different meaning. Nothing will ever be the same again. And here it is. I, I don't think anybody could have imagined that we would be where we are in May of 2020. I mean, I certainly know in February, if you would have told me this is what's coming in May, I would have said, put the pipe down because uh, I don't believe you. Yeah, no, nobody could imagine except for all the virologists that have been warning us yes, for years. That's true. Are not necessarily warning us, but warning the administrations. Right. Why Obama put a pandemic office into being. I won't go on beyond that. Yes, I understand. Are you going to be creating more music? Um, I get asked to do a lot of sessions. So people can send me an A for a wave of tunes and I've been doing a lot of that and uh, right now everybody wants you on their YouTube station so I've done a couple things where I'll play solos and now they want video which is a whole other level because you got to put on makeup Um, and a bra (laughs) there's that too 
That's a whole other thing right there. It is. But as far as putting out my own record, because everybody can get your music for free, I just can't put 10 grand into doing another record and not reaping anything back from it. Right. So maybe one song at a time. I've, I've got a couple of people during this pandemic. There's a buddy of mine that brought me to a festival in Russia that we're going to collaborate on a song and put it up on Bandcamp and see if people buy it. And there's another one in woman in Bulgaria just wrote to me this morning about doing a similar thing. So one-off things is okay, but taking on a whole new record, I don't think so. So do you feel like when you look at your life now, was there, was there any time in your midlife? Cause my book, me, myself, and I, it talks about midlife grief when you lose who you thought you were and you try to see yourself again. I, I spent four years sort of in this dark flight of the self where I wasn't who I was anymore and what I did no longer defined me so it's kind of a scary precipice to be recognizing that you're starting over at 50 or whatever age for some people it's in their 40s some people could be in their 60s but the realization that you're starting over has fear and excitement all bottled into the same moment are have you had those moments are you in that moment are you I had about a, a dozen midlife crises. <laughs> sure. I, I think probably most freelance musicians go through that because it's feast and famine. You know, it, it's not like you have a job you can count on and then you get a pension and you're good. It's it's like, wow, you're doing really good. Everybody's calling you and you're super busy and you can't think about anything else. And then you got three months with nothing happening and then you panic. You know, I've been going through that for for quite a while. But the, the rebirth is, it's frustrating because it's not like, okay, somebody gives me a mon- enough money to, to live on for a year and a half to figure it out. And then I will can be on my own at the end of it. It's like money is done. All the gigs were canceled. You have to figure it out right now. So it's, and being in panic mode when, when you're, brain is filled with stress hormones you're not thinking creatively it's like the renaissance times where you have a patron who just gives you money to kind of sit around and sugar daddy right when you create (laughs) you create it's like okay Uh, yeah so i i know there are a lot of creative i mean thousands and thousands of creative minds working on it right now i i keep hearing that people are on the verge of being able to have bands stream and play live right now almost every platform has such a delay that you just can't do it most of them are not live they make you think they're live but it's just everybody filling themselves in their living room and then they edit it together later right 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 yeah i don't know so that's one thing and uh one thing i plan to do and i just figured it out last night it was so overwhelming to get into the streaming software and learn it inside out and it's different for youtube different for facebook but for me to be able to do a concert live, I play in sync with films. So I had to figure out a way to have the films playing on a green screen behind me while I'm playing in front of it. And I figured out how to get the film behind me, but not how to control it to start and stop the videos. <laughs> so that would have been absolute disaster. But I finally nailed it. And I, I think I'm going to work up to doing shows. And a buddy of mine, Andy Timmons, has done probably half a dozen of them, and he's doing pretty well with that but i don't i don't know how much patience people have for the same people to keep coming back to see you and there's 
there's a limited number of tunes you can keep in your head. You know, it's like, right. please come back. I have one more song I can play now. Right. Uh, and it'll even be the best song. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's the best one. Don't leave yet. Is there anything else you want to add? I feel like we've covered so much ground. This has been really fun. I know we talked tequila at one time and yeah. I definitely want to have you over to our casa to sip on some amazing treats that would blow your mind. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to have that happen. I, yeah. I still remember a, a clinic tour I did in Mexico where the, the guy that was taking me from city to city had his own private plane and he wanted to school me on the difference between the, was it, Aradura tequila that, that they make in Mexico and don't export to America. Difference between that and the typical American tequila. And oh my Lord, one shot and I was good for the night. It right. was phenomenal. <laughs> right. It's all about it's all about the experience. Yeah. Aside from that, um, I just want people to come to my YouTube channel because they, they changed the rules. So you have to have four thousand viewing hours before you're able to monetize and do super chats and make a make money off of it. And I'm about three thousand away. So I I have a whole lot of things. You know, I got the storytelling segments, I got the riff kitchen, and I made uh, half a dozen vlogs of tours that I was on. I would take all these pictures and videos and for a six week tour and then cut it down into 10 to 15 minutes. So, um, I think there's a lot of entertainment there and people got nothing else to do. So come over to my channel. Are you happy with who you are now? Not where you are necessarily, but who you are. That's a deep, that's a deep question. It's, um, I, I will say I have moments of fleeting moments that, um, totally cool with where I'm at but I you know with with this pandemic there's such a panic I just uh wish I had been smarter with savings you know or had an interest to get into the stock market kind of thing you know it just people start talking numbers and I'm like (laughs) you know I just want to play guitar so yeah, I, I, I can't I can't say yes or no on that. I'm somewhere in the middle. That's fair. I, I was on your Facebook uh, live stream that you did uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it was amazing to see how many people from around the world came on to say thank you and you're amazing and you inspire me. And, you know, I know adoration isn't necessarily currency that's going to bring cat food home, but... Right. At the same time, you're never going to really know how much you've touched people in their lives as artists, you meaning the universal you. We never know what our words, our actions, our deeds, our creation brings out into the world. And I I know for a fact that you've touched so many people throughout so many years and in so many different ways, not just as a guitar player, but as a teacher or as a fan of other people who have played guitar or doing the art that you've done or being here in Portland, Oregon and being engaged in our own little music community. I I just have seen it and I, and I know it's true. Well, cool. I I mean, you know, I really appreciate when I hear that from people and I think the best compliment I can get is when somebody comes up to me and says that the show I played inspired them. You know, because I know what that means to me when somebody inspires me. It's energy. It's right. it's juice into the batteries that that helps you go forward. So I'm I'm glad to do it. 
just doing my thing. Yeah. I mean, and we're not necessarily who we are is not what we do. Who we are is what we give. That's mm. what I believe. So, Indeed. yeah. I appreciate you being here. And uh, for everybody, I will put her YouTube channel and Facebook and all that other good stuff or website uh, onto this podcast page. And uh, I appreciate you, Jennifer Batten, badass Batten. (laughs) Well, it's good to reconnect with you. Yeah, you too. And uh, for everybody else, thanks for tuning in to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. And we will be with you again real soon. Thanks so much for listening to Identity Talk with Jana Lopez. It's been a real honor. If you've enjoyed what you've heard, share it with someone you think is in need. And if you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review this show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions or comments or would like to connect with me about one-on-one midlife coaching or to purchase the book, Me, My Selfie, and I, a midlife conversation about lost identity, grief, and seeing who you are, visit www.janalopez.com. Lastly, if and when you should have a moment of doubt, because we all do, in the middle of the midlife transitions and changes, remember that seeing is relieving. Really